You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. The Houndsman XP Podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsmen of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsmen. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this made-in-America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say made in America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete Houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up there! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many day how many days a week do you spend on As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. <laughs> Hey folks, Chris here with the Houndsman XP Podcast. I'm your host, and I'm bringing you a show this week that is very important. As houndsmen, our future and the challenges of continuing to be able to do what we do 
is going to be largely based on being able to answer the question, is hunting with hounds fair chase? A few months ago, I released a podcast with Tracy Jones from Greenville, Tennessee. Tracy writes for Bear Hunting Magazine. He's also the grandson of Barry Tarleton, third or fourth generation bear hunter for sure. Uh, his son, Ben Jones, is also carrying on the legacy of Houston Valley Plots. And we talked in depth about Fair Chase. So I, w- I would encourage you to go back and find that podcast called Sacred Pursuit because we really break it down. During that podcast, Tracy said, made a statement. And it, it, it has had me thinking about it ever since. And he's the one that posed the the challenge, that our challenge moving forward is going to be whether or not hunting with hounds is fair chase and our abilities to articulate that. And I'm not going to make this pre-roll real long, but I've got to lay it out. And I've got to tell you the importance of why I have this guest on our show. If we are to be able to convince the non-hunting public that hunting with hounds is fair chase, then we first need to convince the hunting public that what we do is valuable and what we do is ethical and what we do is the purest form of fair chase. Our guest this week is Nick Pinizzato, and Nick is the president and CEO of the National Deer Association. They were formerly called uh, Quality Deer Management Association, or QDMA. They've gone through a rebranding and a name change, but it's by far the most recognized national organization that represents deer hunters. Nick and I are going to talk about some of the barriers and issues and conflicts between deer hunters and us as houndsmen. It's very important that we understand the logistics behind this, understand different points of view. And I know that deer hunters can be challenging. They control a lot of property. They control a lot of narrative uh, with fish and wildlife managers. They get a lot of the things that they want because they generate so many dollars in um, hunting revenue for not only the public, but also the government entities that, that make the fish and wildlife rules. And we're just going to discuss it. And I think the most important things that we need to remember here is if you want to reduce conflict, then find common ground to talk about. Nick grew up coon hunting in Pennsylvania. Until just recently, he had an English coon hound that he used um, for a, a really unique purpose but he never lost his love for hounds is the thing that I'm trying to get across here the guy that sits at the top of one of the most recognized organizations in the world for whitetail deer management has a common thread with all of us and that's a love for hounds so it's very fitting that we start this conversation for the future of our lifestyle And we're starting to build bridges with the Houndsman XP podcast with some of these groups that want to help us. And sometimes we have to look at ourselves. If we want to help ourselves, we have to look at what we're doing and listen to what other people uh, see in us. 
and and evaluate that. So Nick and I are going to break that down. When you listen to this podcast, listen with a critical ear. Ask yourself questions like, am I really doing everything that I can do to get along with the fellow hunters in my area? Ask yourself questions, are there things that I can do to improve to try to get along for the future of hound hunting? We can't look at deer hunters as the enemy. We've got to find ways to make them our allies, and that's what this podcast is all about. It's not about a legendary houndsman. It's not about a training tip. It's about how we make friends with the most powerful hunting group in the country. It's about the future of our survival. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Houndsman XP podcast. Make sure that you're checking out everything that we've got going on over at houndsmanxp.com on our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram. It's all out there, folks. Everything we do is to ensure a solid future for us as houndsmen. That's always been our goal. That's always been our mission. It may not always be what you want to hear, but I do try to bring you things that we all need to hear. Let's pick up this conversation and start building some bridges, folks. As Benjamin Franklin said, if we do not all hang together, surely we will all hang separately. Through all my years of working with hound organizations and representing houndsmen and, and being in hound groups, and I, I just hear the comments that, oh, you can never work with deer hunters. And those kind of comments make my skin crawl. And then from the deer hunting side, those, those folks have said, you know, houndsmen are the worst sportsmen in the world. And I know that's not true. So Nick and I are just going to have a conversation here and talk about what his organization is doing and how we can find some common ground in this thing because before it's all over then we're going to have to find that common ground and this conversation isn't going to be a kumbaya it's not going to be where we're you know coming together on every issue and every topic but we are going to discuss some some things that that might hurt your feelings they might hurt some deer hunters feelings but we're still going to work to find the common ground so nick i appreciate you taking time out of your schedule and uh showing up to, to help us out with this. Absolutely. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah. So why don't you tell us, give us some background on the, the national deer association. I know you guys are running your own podcast over there and, uh, you just give us a lowdown on the, on the purpose, your mission, you know, some, some brief history on, on the national deer association. Sure. Yeah. And we do, we have a couple podcasts. We have deer season 365 and coffee and deer. And as you and I've talked before, I want to get you over on one of our shows as well, because uh, it'd be good for our audience to hear what you all are doing. So um, yeah, National Deer Association, I was kind of chuckling there as you were describing, you know, some people think, why is there an organization for deer? Because they seem to be doing well. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, which, you know, in, in one sense is true, because man, there certainly isn't a shortage of them, at least in most places. Uh, but deer actually do face a lot of conservation challenges. Um, and so everything ranging from disease to population overpopulation in some cases, which is actually a challenge for deer. 
and so the National Deer Association has been around for we're actually we're not all that far 35 years so we're getting close to that you know 35 40 year mark now we're going to be wow. heading toward 40 years here and we were formerly known as the Quality Deer Management Association QDMA mission, yeah QDMA that's right yep. and so the uh, about two years ago I guess I shouldn't leave this part out uh, more than two years ago going on three years ago now we had a merger of the National Deer Alliance and the QDMA to create the National Deer Association. And so I don't want to bore people with all the details of that, but that's we're essentially what the QDMA was. Uh, and the mission, though, is for the most part is held pretty steady. I mean, our mission is to uh, work to protect uh, deer, hunters, and habitat, essentially. Okay, so we're, we're the guardians of those things. We are really the only national deer organization that is you know really focused on that mission of deer hunters and habitat i mean there are others that uh, do a lot of fundraising and 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 spread money out and give money to groups that are you know related to hunting deer hunting all types of hunting but our focus is truly the science and the policy that impact deer hunters and habitat so um we have a, I think we're a 23 person team now spread out across the country. We have staff as far as California, but the majority are located uh, along the Mississippi and east of the Mississippi, several in Pennsylvania, several in Georgia uh, and in the south as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, we we have uh, I would encourage people to check us out at DeerAssociation.com and uh, learn a little bit more there. Sure. So do you guys represent deer hunters uh, in general, or is it specifically whitetail? You, do you dabble into any of the blacktail or the mule deer species? Yeah, on a policy uh, aspect, we do. So things we're working on policy related to chronic wasting de- disease, for example. I mean, there's a mm-hmm. disease that impacts not only deer, but you know all deer species, but also elk and moose. So we would be involved there. Uh, we don't get involved, though, in like mule deer habitat work. There's the mule deer foundation that does that Mm -hmm. uh, and does that part of it well. So we are definitely more heavily skewed toward whitetail, but not, uh, we don't, we're not exclusive to whitetail. Sure. Well, that's good news because I know that um, the mule deer are facing some challenges as a result of the population dynamics of whitetail, Uh, you know, taking up, taking up habitat, occupying space, you know, even some, some, um, you know, uh, just a lot of, just a lot of focus on, you know, the mule deer and, and the adversity that they're facing and, and the whitetail. So uh, whitetail is contributing to that. So, so when you talk about, I think it's an interesting thing and, and the overpopulation of whitetail deer, I think everybody, uh, everybody would agree that in certain parts of this country, that there are plenty of deer and we, we laughed about that, you know? So we're like, why are people out here creating habitat for deer? Why are they doing that? Why are they working on this stuff? But I want to specifically talk about the overpopulation issue. And from my perspective, um, you know, as a professional, that was one of the biggest challenges within, um, the DNR here in Indiana was, was trying to manage this population in a way that was responsible, but also helped resolve the issues, everything from, from agricultural damage to automobile collisions to, you know, just private 
landowner or small home individuals who were, you know, having deer eat down $10,000 worth of landscaping. So, you know, what kind of, what kind of issues are you seeing on a broad scale about, about th this population issue in the, in the places that it applies? I'm not talking about, you know, uh, someplace where the, where there's a population shortage or an issue. And I'm not sure even where that would be at this point. Yeah, well, believe it or not, there are a few places, but uh, for the most part, yeah, I mean, it's not, that is not the case. I, I think the first thing I'd do is take a step back, um, and particularly as as we advocate and teach people how to manage their land uh, for deer, what we're not managing for is more of them in most cases. Right. So for us, good management means a sustainable population that is not an overpopulation. Uh, so, um, you know, harvest especially antlerless harvest harvest of does is a big part of good conservation planning because that's how you control the population and we've uh, you know taught people over the years and continue to teach them that uh, fewer deer means better deer and healthier deer and it also means less conflict with things like you said automobiles agriculture mm -hmm. residential issues disease all of those things and so we certainly encourage the harvest of deer um, we do recognize though that everybody manages a little differently. There are certainly some folks out there and I got, I got a laugh whenever you were saying you can't work with deer hunters. And, you know, sometimes I feel like that too. And that's exactly what we do. <laughs> you can't work, work with houndsmen with... either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's always somebody that has their own view of what they want to do. And so you get into private property rights and so on. And maybe somebody thinks that seeing a hundred deer every time they go to the deer stand is, is a good, healthy thing. Uh, but we do our best to teach people that that's not the case. And so, um, you know, the other thing I wanted, I wanted to mention too, is I think one thing a lot of people don't realize, and we're working really hard to, to make this more known is that, uh, about 80% of everybody who buys a hunting license is doing it to hunt a deer. And so when you consider all of the money that's generated for wildlife conservation, most of that money is being generated because people want to hunt deer. And so whether you want to hunt uh, a raccoon or a roughed grouse or what have you, you should care about deer hunters because they are paying a lot of the money that goes to state wildlife agencies for management. And even if you're somebody that just, if you're in Indianapolis and you have a bird feeder and you like to see songbirds, well, some of that is also being paid for. The management of those is being paid for largely by deer hunters. So uh, that's that's another reason why deer are so important. Love them or hate them, uh, they're pretty important to the the financial engine that fuels conservation. But it it wasn't always like that. I mean, in the the early seventies, you know, you still had a lot of small game hunters. I remember when I was hired in nineteen ninety, the most participated hunting season in Indi state of Indiana was squirrel season. Believe it or not, I mean, it was squirrel season. It was uh -huh. a it was a gateway to all kinds of hunting, and that was as late. Um, it's not late now. I've got listeners that weren't born until the year two thousand, but uh, you know, it's uh, it was it's amazing to me to think that as as recently ago as the year nineteen ninety, that was still the number one. The number one participated in hunting season was squirrel season. And, and yet yes. here we are in 2023. And when I, when I retired in 2018, I would be fired up, you know, every year at August 15th, that's when squirrel season came in. You always went, 
to work that day, hoping that you would, it's like, yes, we're finally into the fall seasons. And from August 15th on, man, we're going to get into the hunting seasons. It's all coming now. And you'd go out and you'd talk to several uh, people on our fish and wildlife areas and, and small woodlots and different things. We're out squirrel hunting. And now it's like a ghost town. You know, nobody's doing it. Yeah, I was smiling when you said squirrel hunting because I still like to go out. And uh, I know I'm, I'm a rare breed that does that. Um, but I certainly enjoy squirrel hunting. And yeah, that's the first animal that I harvested once I had a hunting license was a squirrel. And I'm going to guess that that's the case for a lot of people. So me too. Yep, yeah. Me too. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's so those traditions certainly aren't what they used to be. Although I think we are seeing some growth in upland birds and, and waterfowl, which, which is good and some other things, but, mm -hmm. um, and you know, these things also are kind of cyclical though. They're, they kind of go in trends. And so, um, yeah, I think a lot of those people that were hunting squirrels still hunted deer. And I think that was more of the point that I was making, but certainly, yeah, less people now hunt small game and other animals. We, uh, you were talking about hounds here. Uh, we didn't get into my background, but I grew up raising hounds. I thought about, I thought about that, man. I, when I, yeah. you were introducing yourself, I was thinking, man, I missed a good, a key point here that we need. <laughs> the reason that we can find common ground with you, Nick is yeah. Let's talk about your background and you're from Pennsylvania with your background with hounds, things like that. Yeah. I, I grew up in a, in a very rich hunting state in Pennsylvania. I mean, there's still, you know, tons and tons of hunters here. We don't have a million like we once had, but we still have an awful lot. Uh, case in point, yesterday I'm trying to get my second antlerless license, and I had to wait in line online for half the day before my turn came up to even go buy one. So it's still pretty crazy here. But um, anyway, yeah, we used to uh, raise red tick hounds and do a lot of uh, raccoon hunting as a kid. I remember uh getting sideways with my mom once in a while because we would go out and sometimes you get on a good chase and I wouldn't come home until it was already daylight the next morning and I was supposed to be at school and so <laughs> yeah we had some uh we had some great hunts over the years and um had my own uh, hound puppy as my brother did and and had a chance to raise the dog and uh and then you know once it went on to college and so on I got away from it a little bit and then my dad got away from it but I whenever um my wife and I got married and wanted to have uh, a dog, I actually sought out and, and looked around in shelters until I found a red tick hound. And because one of the things I learned about hounds is what tremendous loyal pets that they are. And so uh, my hound arrow, now she's passed. She, she, we had to have her put down last April. She was uh, 13 years old and just mm -hmm. had just run out of gas. But uh, that dog was cool because I, I didn't get her because I wanted to hunt raccoons with her anymore i originally trained her to trail deer blood trail deer right but then uh, i got into the waterfowl world a little bit and worked for delta waterfowl uh, uh, foundation and instead of going out and getting a duck dog i trained her to retrieve ducks and no so way. oh yeah i have i have lots of pictures of them and and i always uh, give people a good laugh when i show her sitting there on her little uh, swamp stool and going out and retrieving ducks and so hounds are great swimmers yeah and so they laughed at me and i said the only thing this dog can't do is sit out in the cold for very long so she's kind of an early season waterfowl dog <laughs> but yeah, anyone that's listening to this that raises hounds know those you know those dogs they love you and they'll do anything for you and you can train them to do just about anything and so um yeah that was a very fond uh very fond memories for my life is is raising hounds and being around hounds so i certainly have a deep appreciation for 
for that culture for sure. Yeah, for sure. And, and I'm, I apologize for not bringing that up in the beginning, not only to you, but to our listeners as well. I mean, that was a key, key element to, uh, to this discussion we're having today. So as a, as a, I've got to ask some questions about the, the hound and the, the waterfowl hunting, because we've been having some big debates about the trainability of hounds and, and how, uh, you know, how much of it's genetic and how much of, of it is training and things like that. And, and what we're, I, I think even as houndsmen, uh, you know, traditionally we're not looking for a hound for our audience. that's going to retrieve ducks, but it's amazing that there's still that versatility that you can achieve that. So was she like good at it? Was she, you know, describe, describe the way she, she hunted and, and retrieved ducks. I mean, was it a force retrieve? I got to get more information on that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Happy to. I, I think the very first, the, the most foundational thing to me was that, um, you know, hounds can, the hounds can be very loyal and and they will do anything for you and they're willing to be trained if you know if you have that tight relationship with them and i think um you know i'm sure not everyone listening keeps their hounds in their home but i did and i think that that creates a sort of a special bond there uh, you spend a lot of time together and um you know you become buddies and so that was the first thing and then i would say beyond that i think uh, the first thing i needed to teach her in terms of the training was i needed to see how she would react to water because I didn't really have her other than just around small streams and whatnot. I never had her uh, jump into a lake or a, a slough and swim out. And right. so that was the first thing I trained her on. I took her out to some ponds where there were some docks and she loved to retrieve. So she, this dog would play ball all day long and, and run and catch a Frisbee and until she passed out. And so that was my lure to get her to jump in the water. She was reluctant at first, but then once she dove in the first time, then she would go a little bit further and a little bit further. And then I introduced her, I uh, changed from tennis balls to bumpers. And then with the bumpers, then what I did was I attached, uh, you could buy uh, duck wings and I would mm -hmm. attach duck wings to the bumpers so that she would get used to that feel of feathers in her mouth. And then to the point where I introduced the sound of the shotgun blast and then throw the bumper. And then she would put those things together in her head that, okay, you know, I hear the blast, I see the splash in the water. And then when she was given the command, then she would just swim out there and, and bring the ducks back. And so the only thing I didn't teach her that, that came up whenever we were first hunting was, uh, you know, what if a duck is still just sort of, you know, you know, flapping its wings or whatnot. Right. And so that was, I could tell that was a little bit awkward for her the first time she brought a duck back that was you know, still kind of flapping. But, um, yeah, she figured that out too. And I just, I realized really quickly what a great swimmer she was. I mean, she was an excellent swimmer and she loved to retrieve and more than anything else, she just loved knowing that I was proud of her. And so she got lots of, uh, you know, love when she would bring a duck back. So, yeah, I mean, she caught on really quickly and I, I don't know that I did anything, um, you know, really sort of outside the box. I just did some basic things that I thought That's would great. be That's great. That's an anomaly. It's an anomaly that, that she had that high, you know, ball drive and, you know, retrieve drive and things like that. I can only imagine the comments at the boat ramp, you know, <laughs> early in the mornings, loading your stuff in the boat and somebody else who brought a coon dog to a duck hunt, you know? Yeah. Oh man. That's great. Was well, she steady to shot and everything? Oh yeah. Yeah. She was great. And to the point where then, um, 
I would have her around me and maybe I was target shooting or shooting a handgun or something. And she, I, I forgot it, you know, how driven she was and I'd shoot and she'd start running around looking for the duck. So I had to, uh, you know, ex- you know, show her that not all shooting necessarily means there's going to be a duck there. So, right. um, but, but I would, you know, to your point, and, and I mentioned about the cold, this is how spoiled this dog was. If she'd retrieve a couple ducks and it was kind of cold, then I would take her up to the truck and leave her sit in the warm truck while I hunted a little bit longer. So <laughs> yeah, it was definitely interesting and fun. Yeah. Well, we've, uh, the other, the, the other key element here, and this is something I, w- I was going to get into anyway, was the, the commonality in our crowds. Cause we do, we do several podcasts about deer recovery, you know, with dogs. And we've done podcasts mm-hmm. about training that we've had, uh bavarian hound guys on here we've had yog terrier guys with long spur i know uh you know robert miller from miller's tracking up in michigan he's a he's a big um supporter and listener of heath hyatt's podcast on wednesday and and so you know that's another reason why we want to have this conversation about bridging this gap between houndsmen and deer hunters you know, Dustin Machado down in Texas, he's, he's got a great relationship with, with deer hunters because there's a service that they provide and there's a need there, uh, from the deer hunting community, n- not to just r- write off all houndsmen as bad actors, you know, because that's, I'm not afraid to call out the bad actors. I did it for 28 years of my professional career. So sometimes I get a little brash on the mic and challenge people, but, uh, so, so when you were doing the deer recovery with your hound, was it, was it more about, uh, just for personal and family use or, or were you providing that service for other people as well there in Pennsylvania? Yeah, no, it was just totally for personal use mm-hmm. and to give her something to do, frankly. And I was just curious about it myself and, uh, you know, I never got to finish training her because it was right toward, you know, as sort of in the middle of her training, uh, we moved to North Dakota and that's when she became a duck dog. So, um, but no, I had no intention of doing it, uh, you know, commercially at all. Right. Right. Well, that's a big, that's a big deal now. You know, you see a come November, I was sitting back watching last year, uh, just watching social media and follow some, some general hunting sites and, and different things. Uh, some sp- specific, uh, deer hunting sites, the Indiana bow hunters association and, I was amazed by the amount of requests out there for, you know, recovery dogs. So it's definitely something that, that is gaining a lot of popularity and hunters are starting to see the value of having a well-trained dog that can help them assist for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There it's definitely growing and, uh, you know, it's it used to be, you couldn't find someone that had a dog that would track a deer. And now people figured out they could make pretty good money at it and, uh, keep their dogs active too. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely growing. Yeah. And maybe when I come on your podcast, we can talk about some of the things that deer hunters need to do if they want that dog to be successful when they come, when they show up, we'll, we'll cover some of that on your podcast. Cause it'll be more applicable there, but we've done, done several podcasts on that topic and with, uh, you know, being a former law enforcement canine handler, the, the concepts are the same of scene preservation and, and being just, just adding another layer to increase your success. So absolutely. Yeah. So getting back to the, the, you know, the, I think we just start off with, I, we've talked about this 
in other meetings when you and I've discussed things. I think at times you just have to break some eggs to make an omelet. You know, you just gotta, you gotta talk about the elephant in the room and just get that out of the way. And deer hunters, and, and I'm not trying to be, you know, stereotypical or paint everybody with a broad brush, but I think we start where, um, we look at the, the, the dynamics of the deer hunting community and then compare that to, um, you know, the amount of membership that you have. So how many deer hunters are you guys looking at? as you know across the united states do you guys have any hard numbers on anything like that hey folks this is a great opportunity to tell you about a product i'm using right now that i've just flat got addicted to and that is onyx i'm in northern new mexico right now as you're listening to this podcast and we've been chasing bears i came out here a few days early took the opportunity to to ride the ranch here mark the trails mark water sources food sources bear sign all of that sort of stuff and it helped me get to know this ranch when a bear is started at the bottom and he's coming to the top i don't have to try to find a trail i've already got it mapped through the app i mean it's so easy it's right there on your phone that you got with you all the time anyway i want to tell you also a true story this happened this morning when we were running a bear the hounds were taking a track from the bottom of the canyon. They were going up through some rocky, ledgy country there, and they were headed towards the top of the mesa. I flipped open my Onyx, and boom, I know right where my trails are to get up there if I need to pack them up, if I need to, you know, just get to the top of the mesa in a hurry. I already knew where that was because I'd already mapped it. I'd already laid my track from my buggy and was able to see where all the trails were coming out of this country. Also, the other part of the story is I couldn't actually get my handheld tracking device to orient properly and tell me exactly where the hounds were. So by opening up Onyx, I had an idea the country they were in. I could see all the train features. Super handy. You can get their elite package by going to our website, going to houndsmanxp.com. Go to our partners page, click on the Onyx icon, and go to their website, and you will pick up 20% off of your elite subscription when you use the code HXP20. It's that easy, folks. Know where you stand with Onyx. Yeah, you hear different things. Um, You know, just a general rule of thumb, if you say 10 million, you're probably pretty close. It might be 12 but it's at least 10, you know, I've seen, I've seen different numbers and it becomes challenging because you have some people that are in and then they're out for a while and back in. So those are typically the numbers that we use, but there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And then what kind of a percentage do you get for membership, uh, in, uh, you know, from that 10 million, what's your, what's your estimate on that? Oh, it's horrible. And this is something we have done, uh, some research on. So deer hunters tend to be the worst joiners of groups like ours so it's far less than one percent would would be a member of the of the national deer association uh it doesn't mean that they don't follow us or read what we put out there we we certainly influence way mm-hmm. more than that half of a percent uh but in terms of people that actually join it's tiny and so much so to the point where we created a free membership where all you have to do is just provide your your email and mailing address and you get a membership for free. We have a basic membership because we realize you don't really 
it's not a way to fund your organization with membership. You, you, you fuel your organization with people who are interested and they participate in other ways. So it's small. It's not like waterfowl hunting, which is one of the highest, right. Uh, you know, join, join rates. Mm-hmm. Does QMQ, well, I, I said QDMA, I'm still stuck in that mindset. Sorry about that. Does the nope. national deer, deer association, are you guys, uh, doing chapter banquets, have chapters of, for the organization, things like that around the country? Yeah, we do. Uh, we have branches. We call them branches. Uh, they're scattered across the country. We've just made some investments as well in that area, of, uh, hiring a couple more people to help uh, encourage the formation of those branches. Um, you know, fundraising is part of what they do, but uh, for me, I think it's it's more important that they are engaged in uh, the mission of the organization, providing local leadership and and participating uh, in the things that are fun. Yeah, I think fundraising. They un- people understand fundraising is important, but I don't think most people join because they want to go fundraise. I think they join because they want to take part in the mission. And so uh, we're we're really pushing people to do that with the understanding that the fundraising then naturally will follow. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a challenge. Membership is a challenge, even though you know houndsmen are can be very supportive but we're even seeing a dynamic now where there's there's less involvement in fraternal organizations and that that applies all across the board i don't care if it's the vfw or the american legion or or what it is you know americans have become very poor joiners and supporters of their cause uh they're not afraid to get on facebook and be facebook warriors and make their comments and and things like that and to me that's like you know, standing out in the wind and beating the, beating the wind with your fist, <laughs> it does no good. Um, but as far as being joiners, it's, it's something that we're seeing that's, that's really taking a hit for sure. Well, we have, it's interesting that you say that because we've, we've gone through all this when we re- we just recently revamped all of our membership categories. And what we found is it's not that people don't care. They're not engaging in your mission. Right. It's just, it's like when, you know, we were probably similar age. And so, there was a time when we joined something, we enjoyed getting that little plastic card in the mail that said we mm-hmm. were a member of wherever. And the, the, you know, these newer generations coming through don't value that as much. They value what we do and they want to participate in it, but they don't care as much about the, the membership. And so it's caused us to try to modernize and be more thoughtful about ways to engage those people without saying, hey, you have to send us you know, your 35 bucks for a membership. Right, right. Well, I think that's one of the valuable things about discussing, you know, you and I having a discussion the, is is the fact that there's no doubt about it. The NDA and has established themselves as a credible voice in the hunting space and also not only an influencer among deer hunters, but also an influencer as a credible voice with fish and wildlife managers. And so by, by starting discussions like this, we can learn from each other here and, and bolster our own interests, you know, by watching people that are successful, nobody watches, you know, sits back and watches a loser and, and figures out how they're going to, how they're going to plan their life and plan their strategy, you know? They, right. they, if you want to see great things then then you watch great people and you watch great organizations when, um, the secret service trains their agents of, 
about how to spot counterfeits, they don't put counterfeit bills in front of them. They study the real thing. They study real money and, and learn every detail of the money. So you're never going to get anywhere watching people that aren't successful or watching the real thing. And, and one thing that nobody can argue with is the amount of influence that, that deer hunters and deer hunting organizations have on fish and wildlife managers. What do you think the key is to that? What's the key to your success there? Well, I think the number one thing is, is that we are 100% driven by science. And so we don't allow ourselves to get involved with, um, you know, the emotion of an issue. We recognize that sometimes the science says we should do something that maybe deer hunters don't like or appreciate. Okay. So we, but we never waver from that. And so I think that's certainly gained us a lot of respect. Um, for we're talking about you know hounds here for example some method of take ways of hunting animals that that does not really matter to us as much as how we're how we're managing populations meaning there are a lot of ways to, to take deer out of the population and so we don't sure. get involved with whether or not you do it with a bow or whether you do it with a gun a crossbow a muzzle loader uh, whether you do it with hounds that's not our our issue our issue is the health of deer and in habitat and herds Mm-hmm. And so we don't get into, we, we just don't get into those emotional issues. And I think that's certainly gained us a lot of credibility. And we do a ton of work with state wildlife agencies. And even before I jumped on here, I was talking with, with someone, a federal partner that we work with. So uh, I think that's where it starts. So you keep everything science-based, leave the emotion out of it. Um, I don't think you, most deer hunting organizations are very, from my experience have been very influential uh and now we're getting into the part of the conversation that that we might have to break the legs and and maybe lay some things out because i think a lot of times from listening to my audience people feel like that um you know deer hunters walk in the room and they kick the door in and they get whatever they want and and they're not conscientious of of what other supporting groups and supporting other supporting groups the only thing they care about and going back to the QDMA days, you know, everybody thought that that was an organization that we're just talking about growing big bucks, big bucks. We gotta have those big bucks. You gotta have the wall hanger, blah, blah, blah. And, and so in the wake of that, there's been this impression that the deer hunters don't care about anything else besides growing big horns. Can you address that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> I think the key thing you said there is impression. And so there's impression and then there's reality. Now, certainly in the early days of the of the Quality Deer Management Association, that was the time, like I said, we're going back 35 years ago now. Um, that was a time where people were starting the whole, we, we used to actually have a, a slogan, let them go so they can grow. And so, right it, there, there's no question that that was the early roots. But even even in those early roots, it was still driven by trying to uh, limit populations, doe harvest, harvest more does. And the organization, it's funny, the organization at that time caught a lot of flack because people just couldn't understand why would you want to shoot does because I want to see 50 deer out there. And right. so, um, that was the part of the message that was kind of lost in the beginning. Uh, was this idea that you need to reduce populations. And so at any rate, um, 
you know, I think to, to the point that you're making though, is as, as things evolved over the years and people started buying their own property and that there, that's never been bigger than it is now. I mean, there are several companies out there that really, you know, exist to sell hunting property. I mean, yes. I, I own property in Pennsylvania and I get letters probably at least once a month from, from these companies that say, Hey, we want to buy your land. <laughs> um, so, um, and so what's happened is you've created this dynamic where people in many cases empty out their life savings or <laughs> even use money they don't even have. And they, they find right. a way to acquire property and they become extremely protective of that property. And then that limits, uh, you know, use by, by others and creates conflicts. And when there is a conflict, it becomes very, um, you know, I don't know if heated is the right word, but there, it just, it, it's just a high intense moment when that happens. And because I've been people to some, are I've responded to some pretty heated moments over the years, Nick, between, you know, conf yeah. conflicting user groups. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, that, that is a side effect that I think of people understanding, well, if I want a certain quality of hunting, the best way to do that is I can control it myself by having my own place to do it. And that's okay. I mean, I think that's perfectly fine, but then, you know, the follow-up to that is it does create uh, more, more intensity and these, uh, you know, sort of elevated environments where you do have conflict. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that was never an intention of anybody. It's just sort of a natural evolution of what happened there. Uh, I will say as a, as an organization, we recognize that you know, quite a while ago and you won't even see, you won't see us use those terms that were used in the past, you know, the whole, let them grow so they'll grow type of thing. I mean, we are really a, a conservation organization broadly. And so that isn't our focus anymore. Now we certainly aren't, you know, we're not trying to pretend that we don't know that if you manage your deer herd better, you will have a chance to shoot older age class deer. That's certainly part of it, mm -hmm. but that's not what drives, you know, what it is that we do. So it's just, it's been an evolution for us as well. As a, as a leader in your organization, you know, it seems like everybody that, that, um, everybody that buys a hunting license within a few years becomes a, you know, a conservation expert. They get a wildlife biology degree through, uh, Facebook and, and things like that. So I know that not everything that you do as an organization, you just get the masses falling in line and supporting everything you do. And, and you touched on something that was, um, you know, pretty key. Yeah. I remember back in the, uh, late eighties, early nineties, it wasn't anything to sit in a tree stand and see 30 or 40 deer, you know, during archery mm -hmm. season come through. And as we started changing our management plans and different things, you know, now if you sit there and you're seeing 10 in the, in a morning sit, that's a pretty good day. Even for Southeast Indiana, where it was a destination place to deer hunt. So, so as a leader of your organization, how do you handle some of the dissenting opinions, um, you know, handle some of the, the, I guess we just start out with what challenges you face as an organization and how you overcome those successfully to stay focused on your mission and continue to do the right thing for deers, uh, deer and deer hunters. I said deers. I sound like a hillbilly. <laughs> no. uh it's i think it goes back to what i said earlier and just being a science-based organization if you stick to what the science says and you rely on peer-reviewed science i think you keep yourself out of a lot of those troubles we don't try to 
we don't spend a lot of time trying to convince somebody that's got their mind made up that we don't have enough deer, for example. Um, and so I think just staying out of those arguments, we, we have a lot of people that don't like us just because we say you should harvest does or because, uh, you know, we're not just strictly focused on shooting big deer and, uh, you know, those types of things. So there are, believe me, there are plenty of people that don't like us or don't like uh, positions that we take. I can tell you, uh, if, if there's a, uh, let's say you, you weren't allowed to use, uh, well, we'll pick a neighboring state, Illinois. If you, if you, all of a sudden they pass legislation says everybody's allowed to use a crossbow now. Mm -hmm. And so we would get asked to weigh in on that. And we would simply say, we don't weigh in on that because it has really little to do with the, with the management of the species there. And so we have people mad at us because we don't weigh in to, you know, to, to oppose crossbows. We actually would take the opposite stance and say it allows for more people to participate. And so we get a lot of people that get mad at us for those types of things. And there are some people that they try to deny that chronic wasting disease is a real thing and that it's a, it's a real uh, issue to be concerned about. And they get mad at us because we follow the science and say, no, it is important. And here's what we need to do to, to, to try to slow it down. And so it's just, if you, if you always rely on the science and you don't allow yourself to be swayed by public opinion or political opinion, I think that keeps you, you know, on the, on the road and doesn't allow you to sort of get off track. And then all of a sudden you're having to defend weak positions. And, uh, and so we are always, and have always been, and it's something I'm really proud of. We have always been 100% science-based and that's, that's how it's going to be at least as long as I'm here anyway. Sure. Yeah. I think that's a, a very, even in 2023, after so much of our scientific community has come under scrutiny and, and been weaponized and everything else, you know, nobody's weaponizing, you know, whether there's uh, nobody weaponizes some wildlife management. Some of it has been weaponized. You know, you start taking the wolf and things like that, and there's definitely agendas and and the anti-hunters try to weaponize different issues all the time, but mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not going to change the world. World powers aren't sitting around worried about how many does are shot in Ohio County, Indiana. That's right. So, yep. yeah. And that's where people start attaching their emotions to, you know, it's hard for me to get my kids involved in hunting. If you take them out there and, and they sit for, for 12 hours straight and don't see a deer or you don't tree a raccoon or you don't find a bear track, you know, that attention spans are important. I'm more invested. It's, you know, I can handle the ups and the downs, but, but trying to do introduction into stuff like that and not seeing some of that success, or at least, a, at least getting to enjoy the experience of that, then, then you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough when you're, when you're trying to recruit new hunters. Yeah, it is. And, you know, frankly, there are other, other species that are a little easier when you're trying to get people excited about hunting than deer hunting, for sure. I mean, deer hunting tends to be pretty solitary and, you know, you can go a good amount of time without seeing right. any deer. I mean, I, I think you know, turkey hunting is exciting because even if you don't see one, you're probably going to hear one in most cases. So that gets mm -hmm. you excited. Waterfowl hunting's fast moving, even, even, you know, hound hunting. I mean, you're out there in the middle of the night chasing raccoons. Like I remember fondly as a kid and there's always something going on, you oh, know, yeah. and you, 
the dogs are out there working and so you know, yeah. if you go out if you go out with a dog and and whether you're hunting squirrels or bears or raccoons or or lions you know it's it's something that's interactive at least there's a dog in the picture kids kids can stay pretty focused and i always call them the gate you know like squirrel hunting with a dog or rabbit hunting with a with a good beagle is a is a gateway sport that uh lifestyle that that opens the gates who knows where a kid's going to go with their hunting career after that and yeah and because because they don't have to sit quiet dad's not poking them in the ribs and saying Shh, be quiet there's a deer coming <laughs> you know uh it's it's a it's a whole different i've taken several kids you know coon hunting over the years if they get bored they go down to the creek and they start skipping rocks and catching salamanders and they're not interfering with anything yeah, and I think the technology too of the hound hunting is cool now. It's not what we had growing up. I mean, we didn't have GPS collars where you could watch right. where these dogs were, and I mean, you literally you just had to be out there and you had to understand, you know, when a dog was treeing and and how far out they might be and when it was time to call them back. And and you know, a lot of that has changed with just the technology, which you know that's even fascinating. So like my son, he's only six, but he's really fascinated by technology. And maybe not so much yet being in the outdoors. And when you combine those things, I'll bet he'd get a kick out of seeing the hounds go out and watch them work and know where they were. And so it's just a different time now. And uh, yeah, I think it's all sure. good. Yeah. All right. So let's get in. Let's get into a controversial issue here. And I, I want to get your opinion on it. You know, there there is a lot of conflict between deer hunters and houndsmen at times. And a lot of talk about emotional type stuff. You know, there's a if you want to get emotional about stuff, then, then just, you know, look at social media and read comments about, you know, some of the conflicts between houndsmen and deer hunters, that'll get you emotional pretty quick. Um, what do you think the root cause is for that, for, you know, deer hunters being at odds with houndsmen or houndsmen being at odds with deer hunters? Yeah. I mean, any thought into that? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, and we, we get asked to weigh in on this topic on the regular um yeah i don't know if it's one main thing i think it's a few things i think number one is a lack of awareness or understanding maybe of each other um i, I could go out my door here in pennsylvania we don't have hound hunting for uh for deer and if i found the first 10 hunters and i asked them hey what do you what do you think of hound hunting uh or hunting deer with hounds they wouldn't really wouldn't know where to start because they wouldn't know much about it it's just not part of the culture here mm -hmm. uh and so there's that part of it just the understanding and i think the other part of it is something we talked about earlier and that is uh, when people make these investments in land it's it's less about i think it's less about a concern of of hunting deer with hounds than it is about protecting their property and so i don't know uh, you know, I, I don't have a lot of conversations with people on this issue, but I don't, I, I would say that very few people that I've talked to say that they just, that they hate the idea of deer hunt, being hunted with hounds. Uh, I think it's more so that they're, they're concerned that uh, this is one that we hear typically. So, Hey, I bought this thousand acre property and I'm doing all these things and I'm sitting on my tree stand and I, you know, I see three or four hounds running through all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, 
you know, I, I own my own, my land is attached to about 5,000 acres of state land and, and coyote hunting with hounds is still a big deal there. And I do occasionally we'll see a hound come through that's, that's hunting a coyote, but there's a difference between that. Occasionally a hound comes through that may have come off the state land versus somebody that is showing up there on the regular, trying to hunt your property with hounds. Right. And so I think it's, I think it's understanding what the differences are. I think it's, um, being willing to have a little bit of a tolerance on both sides of the issue. And, and unfortunately, I don't think it's something that Chris, you or I could solve. It's something that every individual is different than how they look at those things, uh, whether it be this issue or political issues or whatnot. And you just hope that the majority can learn to understand each other a little bit and not, not immediately search for conflict, but search for reasonable resolution. I think it's okay to have a conversation. I say, Chris, yeah, I know you like to hunt with hounds uh, and I'm seeing, but the problem is I'm seeing them on my place, you know, three or four times a week. That's a different conversation than, Hey, Chris, one time last year, your hounds came through my place and I'm not happy about it. I mean, right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I think that's, it just comes down to trying to hope that people can be reasonable on both sides of it. Yeah. And there's, there's back bad actors. We've talked about that before. There's bad actors on wherever you go and whatever you do you know you can't go to a baseball game you know without finding bad actors there that's why they have security you know that's right so um even your little league your kids little league game <laughs> you know, oh, I, you, <laughs> believe me i coach baseball and uh i, I see oh, it yeah i see uh, it at every, at every level for sure yeah yeah, yeah it's for sure you know overreactive parents for their their kid that's uh you know gonna be an nba star but is their dad's five foot seven and their mom's four foot 10, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, the chances of this kid being an NBA star just on physical is, is, um, you know, slim to none here. So, That's but right. yeah. Um, I, you know, when you say, when you say, you know, talking about, I'm just going to be real plain spoken here, you know, somebody getting their panties in a twist about, about you know seeing a hound on their place i i do know people that that are like that that are that are deer hunters they get their they i mean they just totally come unhinged because they see a hound on their place and um one of the things that is out there right away that that houndsmen often will bow up about is the fact that you know our reaction is my hounds aren't going to interrupt your deer hunting. So I want to give you an opportunity to address that mindset that my, my audience may have or use to justify the fact that their hounds were someplace that they didn't have permission to be. Um, and I'm talking so coon hunters, you know, all, you know, mainly, mainly raccoon hunters you know, are the ones that seem to have the big issue, the, the, oh, whole, deer, the whole hound hunting thing in the South, um, is, a, is kind of an isolated deal. It's, it's regional, very regional, and it's cult, got deep cultural stuff. And, and I, we'll talk about that as well, but, but let's, let's talk about, you know, a broader spectrum of, of coon hunters who are, you know, have hunted in an area their whole life. And now they're seeing a base camp leasing sign come up and they're, mm -hmm. they're seeing, you know, no till planters and, and different things roll into their country that, that they got to hunt that property 
for years. And now all of a sudden they've got, got a guy from Indianapolis with some jingle in his pocket that comes down. And it's like, I saw your hound on my place a year ago. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think that's just a fact of life, right? That's the reality of things. If, if, if somebody owns something that we want, that we want, but we don't own it. Mm-hmm. There's, there's not anything any of us can do about that. And you just hope that you can find a relationship or just go right to that person as soon as they show up and say, Hey, I just want to understand what your goals are. And I'll tell you what we've done. And if, if nothing else, we at least will know exactly where each other stands. And I think that's, that's all you can do in that case. Um, yeah, I think a, a big part of it too, is just intent. Um, you know, for me, like I said, I occasionally will see hounds come through uh, my place, the intent there is not that somebody is purposely coming to my place and trying to hunt my place with their hounds. And I, they're in, in my area, it's primarily what they're hunting is coyotes. Uh, what has happened there is, is that they've entered the state land and their dogs have maybe taken a track across my place or whatever. Maybe they tried to call the dog and it didn't come back. What, you know, it's, it's intent, right? The intent is no big deal there. Um, and so I don't worry about it. Now, I think if, if the intent was that somebody purposely and routinely is running their hounds through, that's a different story. But I, I just don't, like you said, there are bad actors, but I think those type of people are really few and far between. I mean, nobody, for the most part, is seeking conflict or wants to cause problems. And so I think, you know, I would just hope that people, if you're a deer hunter and you have, you know, a time or two seen uh, a dog that was there that shouldn't be, then, you know, that's happened. I hope you can understand that that happens on occasion. But if it's, if also though, if you're a hound hunter and your dogs are continually going onto a property and it's causing conflict, then you have to be the one to act and step away from that. And so it's just, it's a give and take. And, um, you know, I've seen a, a situation and this isn't even hound hunting. This is people that have just pets and uh, their pets continually were going onto my buddy's property and my buddy was trapping. And he went to the, to the neighbor's house and he said, listen, he said, I keep getting your dogs on my cameras. I have cameras over a lot of my trap sites so I can see what's happening. And I'm worried that they're going to get caught. So I would just ask you to please, you know, be mindful of that. Well, literally within days, here's a picture of one of their dogs in his trap. And so he, he did his thing. He went to their house and asked them not to do it. And then to the point where their dog ends up in a trap over it. So you know, you just, you hope that again, on both sides of the issue that people can come to some sort of agreement and Hey, if, if, if you're, you know, you're in an area where someone just is very uh, intense and doesn't want you on their land, then you have to respect that even as disappointing as it may be. Um, but I would, I would hope that that, that that situation is more rare. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of it is, I, I know several people that and I'm even guilty of this myself. I have some places here that, that I've just had a, a, I'm not guilty of it, I guess. I guess I just built a relationship with landowners where I don't have to call them. I don't even have to ask them every year. I see them at the feed store. I see them at the corner store. I see them, you know, I see them in my community. They know that I hound hunt. If they see my truck park, they're not worried about it because I've got that relationship with them. I go to church with them, whatever, you know, it's, it's more of a relationship building type thing. And, and for, 
for me personally, just speaking from my own perspective, the, building that relationship with someone who is an absentee landowner in an area that is a destination place for, um, for people who want to hunt whitetail deer is a challenge. It's a challenge. It's not, I'm not saying it can't be had, but it is a challenge. So let's talk about some solutions to being able to build that relationship. And so, and I, I'll just getting right down to the brass tacks of it. There's certain places where I'll see a, uh, a new lease sign come up or a new landowner pops up with on X. There's no excuse for people not to know where property lines are and, and who the landowners are. I was using GIS systems 30 years ago to track landowners and get permission. <clears throat> but, but I still get that gut feeling down in my gut, you know, it butts up next to a traditional piece of property that I still have permission on. Now I'm like, okay, who are these guys? I know they're going to have cell phone cameras out there. Um, and, and my first fear is I don't want to get a hound shot because of an ignorant deer hunter that, that thinks that it's okay to, to whack my dog. So let's talk about some solutions and how we build effective relationships with guys that, that are buying up or leasing big tracts of land to deer hunt on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just communication. I mean, that solves a lot of issues. I mean, you it's you know, you 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 go out on the town, right? And you and you see someone that you might, you know, that, that you're attracted to and you might want to ask them on a date, right? So you got two choices. You can either go up and, and talk to them or you can sit there and say, Well, there's no way that that person would would accept a date with me, and then you just give up, right? <laughs> which which that happens a lot. Like yeah, it does. How That's many a good times example. You, thought, you know, ask ask the girl out because you thought she'd tell you no, right? Right. Um, and so I think it's very similar with, with this situation. Uh, you just, you just have the conversation like, Hey, I'm just coming over here. This is who I am. want to introduce myself. Uh, I occasionally, uh, hunt with my hounds on the neighboring property. I wanted to make you aware of that. Um, just wanted to get your feelings on it. And then you have a conversation. You'll know immediately what you're dealing with. You're either a reasonable person, you may agree to disagree, but at least you know what you're dealing with. And then you can, um, you know, shape your actions accordingly. You know, imagine if I pulled in, it's, it's midday. Um, uh, I see guys around the truck or around the camper or wherever, and I pull in and I just introduce myself and, and start, start building that relationship. And, and now all of a sudden they're putting a face with this hound that they may see on their camera. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of, after you've built that relationship and people know that you're uh, harmless, you know, you don't, I don't want my hounds somewhere that, that they're going to be in danger or they're going to cause me drama or any of that stuff, but it is getting harder. I mean, it gets harder every year, but I'm not coon hunting in the middle of the day on opening day of firearm season, you know, and those are great days. Great. That whole week before firearm season comes here in Indiana, guys will come in and, and they'll make sure their stands are set. They'll maybe bow hunt in the morning, in the afternoon. They're just kind of hanging out and enjoying deer camp. And, and you can pull in there and, and, you know, share a beer with them or, or whatever, you know, in the evenings around the campfire at that point, it's a lot harder to, you know, wish ill on somebody when you've broken bread with them. I think it's huge. Yeah. Oh, it is. And I think another thing too, I was thinking of this when you were talking there is, 
um, I would invite people to go along, say, Hey, I'm going to go out and you know, we're going to go out this evening and, and do some raccoon hunting or whatever and invite them so that they can see what it's all about because um, it's pretty fascinating stuff. I mean, it's, I haven't, I haven't gone or I haven't owned hounds to hunt, uh, you know, raccoons or coyotes for a long time, but a, a friend of mine still is very active. And, uh, just a few years ago, um, you know, I said, Hey, I'd really like to go again. I just, I just had a great time. Cause I wasn't used to the, to the, to the GPS situation as it is now. Right. And that was a cool, whole new aspect for me. And, and we went out and we shot a couple coons and we actually were on my place, which is, a, you know, largely a deer hunting place. And so mm-hmm. we went out there and that was really cool. And, uh, I, I, frankly, I wish I did more of it because it's just, I'll let him handle taking care of all the dogs and, you know, paying <laughs> to feed them. And then I'll right. just go out and enjoy it once in a while. So uh, I think that that could help too, is people, it would give people a better understanding of what it's all about. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think it's, I loved your analogy about asking the girl out for a date. Cause I know so many people, even, even deer hunters, you know, I used to have some guys that came in here and hunted and, and, um, it's like, man, I saw a really good place down the road. That looks like a great place to deer hunt. I wonder if they'd let me hunt. And my reaction was always the same. It's like, you'll never know unless you walk up there to that door and you ask them. And the same go, same way goes for us as houndsmen. We can uh, find that common ground. And the thing about deer hunters, deer hunters get really possessive of their property, usually from about, you know, the 1st of August to the end of, of December, you know, and I don't understand all of it. I don't agree with all of it, but I do respect that. That's respect. That that's your property. I can get access to that property the rest of the year. If I'm just yeah. not an, if I'm just not an asshole, you right. know, that goes and, a long way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you pull in there, it's like, yeah, I just thought I'd let you know that I hound hunt this area and, and you might see my dogs on your cameras and, you know, have this attitude that that's just the way it's going to be. Uh, that's not good relationship building. And you might want to, you know, read a couple books like how to win friends and influence people. Cause, cause you <laughs> suck at making friends. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There will, there will always be those extreme examples and you just hope that they're few and far between. And uh, as you said, there are bad actors on both sides and some people there are some people that are just looking for a fight or looking for trouble too so yeah yeah for sure yeah. well what kind of plans does uh i mean there's so much stuff we could talk about you know with my with my former occupation i've got a lot of experience with the you know deer management stuff like that well, well people can get all that information from your podcast you guys cover all that stuff on those podcasts all the time so, you know, what do you guys got in the works coming up? Yeah. So we're, there's, there's never, we used to talk about, well, when it slows down, right. Nothing, nothing ever slows down anymore. Right, so, right. um, you know, I think we're, we're continually putting out educational information on everything from how to cut a tree down to, um, you know, what, what all different species benefit because you're managing for deer. Right. And so, um, if people are unfamiliar with us and are interested in that stuff, I would encourage them to not just our website, because even websites are kind of outdated anymore, but we do a ton of stuff on uh, our Facebook page, all of our, our, our Instagram. We even have a TikTok account and we're spending a lot of time just educating people about the value of deer broadly. 
and why deer are so important to all the things that we do. And so um, every all of our uh, accounts are just deer association. So any, any you just go to Google, type in deer association, you'll find all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're doing a lot of large scale uh, forestry type projects now with the U.S. Forest Service. So I look for that to expand. We're getting more and more involved with on the ground, large scale projects. So uh, that's that's something we're doing. We also have a really cool pro- program called Field to Fork where we're taking out people who have always wanted to try deer hunting, but never had the opportunity to do it. And we take them for the first time, teach them how to do it. Uh, That program continues to grow in popularity and has been very uh, successful for us. You know, it might even be something that you you may want to consider with with your organization is a program where you introduce people to hound hunting and just, you may take people that have never, they have no interest in maybe shooting anything but just want to see what the culture is all about and mm-hmm. that gets back to the education um and so we're we're doing a lot of that work as well so uh pretty much uh, anything deer deer science policy we're involved in it and uh heavily active right right yeah we we get we encourage we partner with an organization called uh freedom hunters mm-hmm. and uh taking america's veterans back out there and and we help help houndsmen across the country that that want to get involved in that. Um, one of the things that I wanted to touch on that, that we haven't talked about yet is, you know, that there's no doubt about it, that hunting with hounds is one of those things that's under fire and, uh, it's a favorite target for the, the anti-hunting crowd. And too many times I see deer hunters who are more than happy to feed us to the wolves. Um, and even, even talk about the fact that hunting with hounds is not fair chase as a houndsman yourself, you know, how, do, how do you address that issue when, when you hear people from your own community trying to, you know, make statements that, that hunting with hounds is not fair chase. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it gets back to some of the stuff we talked about before, and that is that we're a science-based organization. And so we don't, we're not an organization that concerns itself. I, let me say that to make sure I say this the right way. We care about fair chase. Okay. But we don't try to define what that is necessarily. Okay. There's there, we, we certainly wouldn't characterize hunting with hounds as not being a fair chase hunt. Okay. And mm-hmm. for, for your purposes as an organization. No, right. Yeah. Right. We don't have any policy. We have no policies that oppose hound hunting. Our policy is simply this, that uh, we support whatever the state wildlife agency um, determines is the legal method or way of pursuing deer. And as long as those things aren't hampering uh, deer populations or hurting habitat and hunters in some way, then that's what we support. And so in these states that have um, deer hunting with hounds, we don't oppose that. We, you know, we just, again, we're focused on the science of the issue. Now we do, we certainly support uh, property rights, but I think mm-hmm. anybody would support property rights. And you know, to your point, you're always concerned about that. And so, um, I think that would be in line with, with anybody that's reasonably thinking about the situation, but no, we don't take positions against, uh, hunting with hounds or any of those types of things in terms of the anti-hunting crowd. I mean, there are organizations that deal with that directly. We try not to involve ourselves with, with that too much, although we certainly support policy and legislation to allow things like, uh, for example, we had one recently in, uh, I think it was New York where they had legislation to to ban um, the coyote contests. Right. And so, again, scientifically, we know that 
a contest, frankly, is a way to get people out and participate in predator management. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to harm coyote populations. And it really is more of an attack on hunting generally. Well, we certainly will uh, sign on to letters and support uh, opposition to legislation like that. Things that are driven by emotion and not the science of the issue. Sure. Yeah. So the, the, the biggest thing that I can't understand, and maybe you can help me with this. If I was a, if I was a cattle farmer and I have a tree fall on my fence and my cows get out and they're standing in your food plot, I don't know a deer hunter. That's not going to say, Hey, come over here and get your cows. I need, you know, please. I, and then they probably don't even need to get permission to do it. It's like, get those cows out of here. Um, but it seems like that, that when it's a hound and it's a hunter, then, then people get a lot more emotionally charged about it because they feel like that they're, they're, um, you know, they're being infringed upon. So, you know, why is, why is there such emotion behind, is it just a, a, they feel like it's a lack of respect for their, their property at that point? Why did, why did deer hunters get so wound up about that? Cause things happen when you, when you turn a hound loose, I don't care if you've got a good recall on them or not, you lose signal. And let me lay this out a little bit. You lay, you lose signal with your GPS collar, you lose track of where your dog is. And next time you get signal, holy crap, he's right in the middle of, you know, Joe's Joe, the bow hunter's big hunting lease. It mm-hmm. wasn't intentional. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't answer that for everybody because again, everybody's personality is a little bit different. Um, I have, ironically, you bring up cows. I've had, I, I'm aware of more than one occasion where people's cows got loose and went in and ate, ate up somebody's food plots. Sure. So that actually does happen, which is yep. which kind of crazy. I, I actually remember a case uh, in Illinois where there was a rogue donkey running around that kept showing up <laughs> in a food plot uh, that we that we were getting on a trail camera, which is kind of neat. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think it's it just gets back to this um very sort of protective this is mine i paid my hard-earned money for it i i'm breaking my back out here doing Mm -hmm. x y and z and so because of that it creates this very reactionary um whether it's someone hunting hounds or frankly if it's just a neighbor that gets lost and wanders onto the property i think i think it's that trespassing in general and they just automatically assume somebody's there with bad intentions sure so i'm not sure um you know how to how to solve that one but i think that's where a lot of it comes from yeah this is a this is a magnified example but uh if you own if you own an acre lot and all of a sudden you know you see some guy out rummaging around rummaging around in your your bushes looking behind your bushes and different you're going to come out of the house and you're going to ask questions you know you're Mm -hmm. going to confront that person and come to find out that they you know they're we're visiting a neighbor two blocks away and their dog's gone and they saw their dog or their, you know, run up behind the bushes. There's still an expectation that you're probably going to get asked some questions at that point. You know, why are you looking behind the shrubs? Are mm-hmm. you looking, you know, so it's just, it's an, like I said, it's a magnified example, but, uh, it's so in those cases where the cows got out, was there, uh, some financial ramifications? Are you seeing, seeing deer managers now that are they're seeking restitution for damage for deer plots in situations like that yeah i don't i, I don't i have not seen that specifically no i just know that the, i was just curious that the guy 
yeah, the people that told the story in both cases were, um, they were frustrated, but not like to the point of, it's just one of those things that happened, right? It's like, yeah, I couldn't believe it. You know, he come in and ate out my entire food plot. And, you know, I don't know if the, you know, if the, if the farmer in that case pitched in and and replanted or what, but uh, it was just when you, when you had mentioned that issue, I thought, well, that's funny because that has actually happened. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, Nick, again, um, I think, you know, we're running a little bit long. I know you're a busy guy for sure. And, and, um, I don't put time limits on the podcast. I could talk to you for hours about, about issues, but I think the main thing is, you know, you can sit around and cry about spilled milk or things that have happened in the past, but the only way that we continue, all of us continue to enjoy hunting, um, to the fullest and have the best experiences we can these groups like yours and, and the houndsman groups out there, the trappers, fishermen, I don't care what it is in this 21st century environment. We have to find common ground and find places that we come together and, and not always looking for, for ways to divide us. So I really appreciate you taking time to, uh, to come on the podcast and tell us about what the what you guys are really all about remove some of the cloak and dagger smoke and mirrors you know predisposed idea paradigm paralysis whatever you want to call it that that you can't work with deer hunters because i know that's not true i've I've seen it happen with our state organization got good friends that um are in the bow hunters association they've been there for houndsmen in the past so i appreciate your time to come on on the come on the podcast and, and introduce us to uh, the N- national deer association. No, I appreciate the opportunity. It was my pleasure. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to having you likewise on our podcast as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for listening everybody. Can't tell you how much your listener support means to us, you know, just downloading and listening to this podcast is huge for us. Uh, I never thought we would be able to be able to have so many great supporters out there when we started this thing so i just want to take the opportunity to say thanks and um, make sure you're checking out houndsmanxp.com got a lot of good information there for you places for you to listen to the podcast merchandise it all goes to help support this podcast and build relationships with organizations that are well established that can help us secure a future for hound hunting so and all hunting so Guys like Nick coming on the podcast wouldn't be possible without your support. And we really appreciate that. So Nick, I look forward to, uh, to making an appearance on your podcast and till next time. Thanks for listening to Houndsman XP. This is fair chase.